Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Uh, joining me, as always, my good friend, Bill Fleckenstein. Bill, hi, mate. Hello, mate. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I think today's uh, discussion is going to um, expand a lot of people's minds. Let's just put it that like that. Yeah, I think so. You know, we've, 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 we've sat and got our heads together and, and really drawn up an all-star list of people that we think can help us, uh, if not work out exactly what The Endgame is, certainly get people thinking about all the different possible outcomes. And, um, you know, after after James and Mike Green and Jim Grant, um, we have another fantastic guest joining us today in Russell Napier. Uh, Russell's um, uh, a huge hero of mine. I've followed his work for way too long, decades, I, I can generally say that. Uh, he's a fantastic thinker. He's a f- an incredibly gifted communicator. Uh, and apart from that, he's just a fantastic bloke. Um, he's uh, He's been a deflationist or a disinflationist, I think, for a couple of decades now, and he's stuck to his guns over that. Um, and, you know, Bill, I, every now and again you get an article that comes out or an interview that comes out, and you suddenly find, like, 25 people forwarding it to you saying, have you read this, have you read right. this, read this? Right, You know, it's just one of those. And and a couple of weeks ago, um, Russell uh, was interviewed um, uh, on a website, themarket.ch. Uh, I would recommend you go to that website and, and read that interview and and it, i i mean i was flooded with people saying have you read this have you read this have you read this i mean and i had and every everybody i replied to and said yeah i've read it but it's an extraordinary conversation it's not very often that you get people to to to, to change a view like that as he has done and uh especially when they're well thought out and were well thought out before so it's going to be interesting to see exactly what he has to say well, you know, why don't you and I stop waffling and let's get him on and, and work on Russell to the show. Russell, come in. Are you there? So, uh, Russell, can I can I ask you kind of a leading question? Is that all right? Sure. Um, so I, I've been over the, the recent Q&A you did with um, the, the market, whatever yeah. that publication is. And um, I was kind of curious, uh, what was sort of the, the gestation period or the process where you kind of shifted gears from what, what you'd been thinking before to where you've come to this viewpoint that's that's quite clear in the Q&A. Uh, was it a kind of a long process or could you kind of see it coming for a while? And then finally, when something happened, you said, aha, that's it. I think it's going to go this way. I mean, since this kind of seems like a radical change from where you were before, uh, could you share your how that happened? Well, it's, it's been my view for, for many years that come the next recession, which I thought would be a deflationary recession, which I still think this is, there would be something would happen to, to change that. Uh, I, I think we all thought it would be modern monetary theory, and we've got a little bit of modern monetary theory, but the answer to your question is it came really quickly to me because I realized one afternoon that these bank credit guarantees are it. Yeah. Uh, and obviously they didn't exist in March. But they existed, or they didn't exist in February, but March, April, they existed. So suddenly it's there, it's sitting in front of you. And of course, there's a con- there's confirmatory evidence because bank credit growth is very high. 
and broad money growth is very high. But for me, actually, it was the mechanism. That bank credit guarantee was the thing. Now, that's not to say you wouldn't also get modern monetary theory, which I'm sure would achieve the same thing. But I think our governments have found a, a different way of doing it, uh, a more surreptitious way of doing it, uh, and actually uh, a more effective way of doing it in terms of where the money goes. So, th so that's the answer, Bill. I thought it would come. Didn't think it would come in this variety, but it came really quickly and, and kind of universally. I mean, if you look around the world, they all seem to have discovered it simultaneously rather than MMT. They seem to have come up with this quite quickly. It, it seems as though this, this, is a, this is a much easier thing to get through as well, Russell. I mean, you know, the MMT thing, because it's, it has there's, there's a lot of kind of debate around it. There's a lot of conjecture around it, and it's had enough publicity that at the beginning was a good thing for it, but now enough people are kind of attuned to what it might mean that it's it's kind of tough to get it through, whereas this has happened without really anybody except you taking any notice of it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I don't, I'm not a fan of MMT. I think it's just currency debasement straightforward. Straight this, is, this is something different. It can have that effect, obviously. Uh, but what is it doing in the short run? It's sending money out into the economy to people and small, and small businesses in distress. You know, the history of action from D.C. was that it would be like big businesses and small businesses would go to the wall. So it's very hard to argue against it when the initial impact is to keep in business lots of small businesses and, and households. And I actually don't see anybody arguing against it. No. Uh, if it had been outright MMT, there would have been stuff on the front page of the Financial Times against it. So this is more... Uh, What's the right word? It's, it's just less virulent as a monetary policy. It has its positives associated with it. Uh, nobody has to really vote for it either. Uh, and the most important thing is you don't even have to pretend it's government debt. So when so the MMTers will say that you know we're lending this money to the uh, to the government, they wouldn't say lending, but I think the population would look at it and sort of treat it as a loan. This is a contingent liability on the government's balance sheet, so it's not on the government's balance sheet. And my view is that when it comes home to roost, i.e. they might have to put in a couple of billion to the banks to compensate them for loss of principal, they'll simply roll over the loans so that everybody can pay back their principal and interest. I mean, this is the, this is the way we've been running banks for a generation anyway. So it, it kind of hangs there as a contingent liability. Your government debt doesn't go up. People who vote for you get money. Uh, and I keep drawing attention to the longer-term consequences of that, which are inflation. Uh, but frankly... When, when, as a politician, when you weigh all those things up, they're massively outweighed by the positives, yeah. and the negatives are so far out there. Uh, so, so I, I think um, for all my friends who are MMTers, which I think is a kind of nutty policy, it seems rather, to me it's rather ironic. They kind of got within three feet of the finish line, and suddenly this other horse came up and beat them <laughs> by a nose. You know? <laughs> what um, I have a, a friend of mine uh, who runs a, a big bond portfolio, and he's made the similar point that the big difference between <clears throat> now versus say the prior decade is the, it, it, it was the PPP here where the government guarantees are in place. I saw in the Q and A that you did that there, this happened in Spain. I think you just mentioned that other places, can you cite a couple of examples? Cause it was completely news to me that that had happened. I'd missed it. Yeah, sure. I think so. The reason I thought the Spanish one was interested is it started as a 100 billion guarantee, and then one afternoon it was 150, just like that. Just made a wave of magic wand, and there it was. Because one of the bits of pushback I get on this view, Bill, is it's an emergency program and it will stop. 
you know, and, and if, if that's right, I'm probably wrong. You, know, you get this one pulse of credit and money into the system and it stops, then I'm probably wrong. My argument is that this is the magic money train and I'll keep going. So the Spanish one was quite good because it shows how it, how it grows. Uh, the Germans have got one of the fastest growing banking systems in Europe. So the Germans were quick and efficient at getting this underway. So, you know, it's not as if it's, uh, let's just say, the, the, the European states with lesser history of lesser credit quality and more inflation are doing this. The Germans have been very good at doing it. I think the best one is the British one, actually. It's called the bounce back loan. Sorry, because say again, say again, the, please. It's called what? The British one is called the bounce back loan. So there, there are three different loans in Britain, okay. but the one that's really taken off is the bounce back loan. And I think that's really instructive because the other two were for big companies. But the one that's really flying out the door is the one for small companies, bounce back. The maximum loan you can get on that is 50,000 sterling. So that gives you some idea of the size of the company that might be taking it. Uh, 23 billion went out the door in the first six weeks. Uh, this, uh, bankers, senior bankers went to the Financial Times and explained that they thought 50%, 5-0% of these loans would go bad. Mm. It's 3.6% interest rates for uh, six, six years. I know lots of people who've taken them out, even though they didn't need the money, and at least the, the business didn't need the money. Their accountant said, you'd be nuts not to take the money. So everyone's uh, taking, taking them out. Uh, those are the loans the bankers never made under QE. If a banker says to you, 50% of this will go bad, these are the loans they wouldn't make under QE. Because he had to take the entire risk. Okay, so he was given very cheap interest rates, but he took the entire credit risk. And now he's not taking any of the credit risk. So it's flying out the door. I'm sure there'll be more of these to, to come as well. So that's just some examples. I mean, if we look at bank credit growth in Japan, it's just gone shooting up as well from obviously incredibly low levels. And uh, you know, it's, it's really the reciprocal of money supply growth. But where, where isn't it going up? Yeah, Russell, everywhere, everywhere, you, everywhere you look... Um the, the 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 pieces are in place for a return of inflation everywhere you look and and the things you've just just mentioned there are just more grist to the mill in, in my view and yet um we still have this this massive reluctance on the part of everybody not just inexperienced people but, but experienced people to actually believe that inflation can come back why do you think potentially this time um people are missing the trick because you, you know you you held firm for what, two decades uh, with your view? Um, and you rode this trend all the way down. And, and you know, Bill and I have been talking about this, and it's interesting to, to now start to see people who have been so solid with a viewpoint that's been right um, starting to say, okay, we've reached the end of that trade now. So, so why do you think people struggle to believe that inflation is even possible anymore? And what signs should we be looking for that, God forbid, you're absolutely right? So I think it's time horizons apart from anything else. Yeah. So I mean, if, even I would concede that inflation can go lower before it goes higher. So there's some people I think just you know trying to leave the party at one minute to midnight, and there are many, <laughs> many there are many people who get paid for trying to leave the party at one minute to midnight. So who can blame them? That's what their incentive package is is, is backed on. So I mean, I meet people every day who say, you know, you're right, but it's two years away. You're right, but it's three years away. So I think even even people who uh, believe in deflation don't think that something will change. So it's just a matter of when it changes. But the fundamental pushback I get on my argument is, well, this is a monetarist argument that monetarism is dead. That's that's kind of what you get. <laughs> <laughs> we know that all this money stuff doesn't work anymore. 
And, uh, you know, I'm prepared to have a debate on that. And at certain levels of money supply growth, I think it tells you absolutely nothing. And it's completely useless and worthless. And then one morning you wake up and everyone's got double-digit money supply growth. And I think that's a time to at least pay attention. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it had gone, if the broad money growth in the world, which was, you know, the OECD put out a broad money M3 number, and, and as of about six months ago, that was the lowest it had ever been in recorded history apart from 2009. And yet everybody, you know, nobody was really looking at it. Now that will that rate will have more than doubled in four months. Well, I think that's a big enough move that you can at least raise the question. Uh, so people just saying it's a money argument. Money doesn't matter. It hasn't mattered for forty years. Uh, I think it would matter a lot if we had some sort of blended measure of inflation, which included asset prices. I think yeah, you know, right. I don't think anybody's claiming that money has a direct relationship to consumer price inflation. But if we had some sort of better blended uh, uh, thing, including asset prices, it, it probably would. Uh, everyone just thinks this money goes into asset prices. We always know it goes into asset prices. So it's an argument we can have. I think there's a big difference between a central bank balance sheet growth and broad money growth. And one of those is very good for asset prices. And the other one is more uh, going to be more positive for consumer price inflation. But I can't persuade anybody of the argument because we've just had 10 years of central bank balance sheets going like this and asset prices were the only beneficiary. So uh, that's called, I think that's called Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe what we could do is um, uh, for there, we might have some listeners who don't quite understand why the banks are making the loans um, makes such a difference versus what we saw prior to this. I mean, I, I, you know, the three of us understand what you're saying, but for the benefit of people maybe who don't quite get that, can you give them just the, the quick and dirty on uh, why, why that will change what's happened uh, going forward versus the last 10 years? Yeah, so the, the quick and easy answer to that begins in 1695. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> so I have, I have in my hand a little piece of gold, which is now worth three hundred and forty-five pounds. Unbelievably, this is a this is a sovereign. So in sixteen ninety-five, I, I live in Edinburgh. Some gentleman not far from here decided to set a bank. So they went out and they raised some capital, and all they did was really buy the stuff. And what they did is they put it in a pile over here, and they created a large pile of this. There was no paper money in circulation uh, anywhere in, in, in Edinburgh, the first Bank of England, though it had probably just closed the border. And what they did was they didn't take any deposits and they didn't offer any interest rates. But what they said to people is, look, here's our gold and we're going to lend you money. And what we're going to lend you money in the form of is a piece of paper. So you come in to us, here's a pound, uh, we will charge you 6% interest and we give you this piece of paper. And that piece of paper is a receipt for this piece of gold. And that's it. So they took it out onto the high street of Edinburgh and they spent it. And, and everybody took it because everybody realized there was a little pile of gold. So everybody knew that that piece of paper got you gold. Now it was only within years, they soon realized that no one was bringing the pieces of paper back and nobody was asking for gold. So suddenly there were only 10 of these behind the counter and there were 25 pieces of paper floating in. Now, at that moment, the commercial banks were in the business of making money. It is exactly the same today. It hasn't changed. There's not gold behind the counter today. What's behind the gold or what's behind the counter is something called, we call commercial bank reserves, which is a right for those commercial banks to, uh, they have reserves with the Fed and they can turn it into um, notes and give you notes. But when, a, when these commercial banks expand their balance sheets, they create money. Money is created. I mean, it's the nuttiest thing in monetary, modern monetary theory that they pretend that they don't. And I, as to why they pretend that they don't, I really have the faintest idea. So what's happening? When the central bank expanded its balance sheet, what it did was flushed 
the modern equivalent of these things into the banks. But the banks themselves didn't really lend, so we didn't create a lot of extra money. And that's what's transformed in the current situation. And because of that guarantee the governments have given to the banks, they feel pretty relaxed about lending now. They know they can't lose very much money. So they're in the business of creating money. That's my short uh, history of paper money, 1696 to current. <laughs> well done. You know, the amazing thing is, the, the amazing thing is that uh, it's so telling that you can actually tell that near 400-year story that quickly, right? Because it hasn't changed. It's the same things they're doing well, today as they were all those years ago. This isn't gold anymore. Yeah. But yeah. otherwise, fundamentally, it hasn't changed. And I think it's because this isn't gold anymore that people don't understand that it's the same mechanism. Because they don't see anything tangible. When I say the notes are not backed by anything, then it, it seems to confuse anybody, everybody. But the mechanism is the same, except we replaced this with the reserves a commercial bank holds with its central bank. And everybody watching this will know that those reserves are in wild abundance at the minute because yeah. of quantitative easing and then because of what's happened with central bank balance sheets since then. So there's no shortage of this stuff for a bank. And there's going to be no shortage of uh, people dying to get loans given what the, the virus destruct has done to the economy everywhere, right? I think you've probably seen that the sale of supercars in the United Kingdom is booming. Uh, and most people are using the, the bounce back loan as the deposit on the supercar. I was looking at the sale of boats and yachts in the United States of America. They're up 150 to 200% year on year. Uh, and once again, small business administration loans are being pretty useful as a deposit on your yacht of choice. So it's not just the people, you know, I'm being a bit cynical here, but you know, people and businesses need this money to survive, which is perfectly legitimate. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, there's a lot of excess. Perfectly reasonable businesses are taking this money out to, to fund the, uh, the owner's uh, peccadilloes, let's put it that way. So there's plenty of money sloshing around the system, and there'll be plenty of fraud in this as well. I mean, I keep joking, and maybe I shouldn't joke because I'll pay a high price. There'll be lots of very fine wine drunk on the shores of New Jersey with some of these loans. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know, you right, you'll be drinking it. It'll be, <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be fine red, and it won't be from France. <laughs> right. You just made a point um, a while back of something that uh, I see very little discussion of, and it's something I've thought about for a long time, and that is the distinction between asset inflation and CPI inflation. And it seems as though people feel that asset inflation is always 100% good. Nothing bad can happen. They don't, the, the potential for unintended consequences of misallocated capital seems never to be discussed. And it seems to me that perversely, it's only in periods where it doesn't seem like there's any CPI inflation that they can let asset inflation run wild. And that's kind of been the story the last 20 or 25 years. Why is it, do you think, that so many people seem to act like asset inflation doesn't matter and only a little CPI inflation matters? Why do you think that bias is the way it is? I think it's because of the issue with debt out there. And, and what Pavlov's dogs have learnt, learnt is that as asset prices go up, people gear them up. And therefore, when the time comes for them to go down, the authorities can't afford for them to go down. So they've kind of come to the conclusion that it has to be a one-way bet because the consequences of falling assets in a highly geared system are so negative that it can never, never, never is the wrong, the biggest word in finance, can never happen. So they've come to believe that it, it is a one-way bet socially and politically. It's, it's simply a one-way bet. So there can be never any negatives. The obvious negative for asset prices is they also come down and bankrupt the entire system. We've now seen it twice. Mm-hmm. But we've, we're led to believe that this is no longer a negative because you'll always have someone underneath you to stop it, stop it from happening. Remember, crucially, the central banks were never given an asset price target. 
they were given a CPI target. I mean, that's probably been the problem here. They had the wrong target. Yeah. Not that I'm sorry, they should have explicitly been targeting asset prices. But when you gave them the uh, inflation target, it took interest rates to a level that were incredibly beneficial for asset prices and incredibly beneficial for those who wanted to gear the hell out of asset prices. And that's the 25 years you've just uh, spoken mm-hmm. about. Uh, I will read it here for the first time, but I'm writing a new book. It's exactly on that 25-year period. Uh, which is the 25 years I've been writing, and it's called More Money Than Sense, uh, which is the best title I can think of. Boy, that's, br- that's brilliant. Yeah, I've revealed that. I hope nobody else steals it between now and Christmas. Trademark, <laughs> trademark Russell Napier. You know, it's, it's interesting, Russell. I, I was looking at a chart um, when I was writing something uh, a couple of weeks ago, and when you go back and look at um, uh, GDP per capita, you look at uh, median incomes, the only time in the last 35, 40 years where the you know the top 10 percent um uh, uh, standard of living has fallen more than the bottom 90 percent was after the savings and loan crisis when obviously assets were impaired and we saw a lot of of asset prices deflate and be allowed to deflate in in the wake of that and it it almost feels as though that's something that isn't really talked about much these days that that particular crisis it kind of came and went and everyone remembers charles keating's name but they don't really remember much about the savings and loan but it seems that that as, as I researched it more, was much more of a turning point in terms of understanding exactly what you just put out there, that, that this game of inflating asset prices is crucial. Yeah, I mean, I used to see Paul Volcker very occasionally, maybe once a year. And uh, the first time I met him, I, I just asked him, you know, where did it all go wrong, if you like? That was the question <laughs> for central banking. Uh, and he was adamant that it was LT, LTCM. That was the bailout where it all went wrong. So that uh, 80s bailout, I mean, there were people who got away with things in that as well. But as you say, on the whole, assets were impaired. But as soon as LTCM came in, everybody who had assets or everybody who could gear to buy assets from 1998 to 2020 did so on the belief that they would never be allowed to lose money. And on the whole, that was a correct belief. And there are, there are good reasons why we have inequality in, in, in society. I, not all of us are Steve Jobs. You know, so there's always going to be a Steve Jobs out there, and thank God for them, who will you know, transform the world. But there are also bad reasons, and I would say one of the, the really bad reasons is the overuse of debt to gear up existing assets and existing cash streams. Uh, I, I don't know whether you agree with that, but I don't think it's been a particularly productive use of capital. It's been a massively tax uh, beneficial use of capital. It should never have had that scale of tax benefit compared to equity. I'm not against buying assets by any means. I'm not against enhancing the returns on them. But to make it so attractive uh, in terms of the interest rate, in terms of the tax deductibility, in terms of bailing out people who did it, uh, really produced massive inequality of wealth through financial engineering. So I would draw a distinction between financial engineering and capitalism and say they're two different things. And uh, post-Milken, we developed a different form of capitalism, which has not been... Beneficial for capitalists, I would argue as well, and may, and may ultimately be very, very dangerous for capitalism because most people lump them together, say they're the same thing, and want to destroy both of them. Yes, as we've evolved in the last twenty years since or since LTCM in '98, um, it's become much more crony capitalism, and the bifurcation of wealth has increased. And so, I think that observation is exactly correct from my perspective that it's done more harm for capitalism as a brand, so to speak, not to mention the fact that it's warped so many things. Um, you know, um, in the book that I wrote about the Fed, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to know that that was the moment in time that Volcker pointed out, because that's, that's where I thought that's when the Fed lost its mind. 
when they didn't let LTCM go. I mean, they, you know, they, they made all those rationalizations and things like that. But, but I think everybody got the memo after that, exactly as you say, and uh, have behaved accordingly. You might remember the front cover of Time magazine had the Committee to Save the World. Yep. Three of them, there was Green, Greenspan, Summers, Summers and Rubin. Rubin, yeah. Uh, and let's not forget there were three of them. It wasn't just Greenspan, there were two others as well. And all three of them would have said they were defending capitalism, but I think they may ultimately have sowed the seeds for its destruction. Yeah, that'd be interesting to watch. You know, Russell, um, you know, some, some of the things that you've talked about in terms of what may happen from here, because obviously this, this if, if you're right and the return of inflation is a real possibility, which, which I have to say I agree with, it creates a whole different set of problems. And some of the, some of the solutions to those problems from um, the point of view of lawmakers and central bankers are pretty dramatic. You know, could, perhaps you could just talk a little bit about what you suspect they may, I would imagine, be forced to do in order for this transition to work. Yeah, so there are two things. A, number one, you have to create the inflation, but then number two, you have to stop interest rates from rising. Yeah, and that's not, right. just, that's not just short-term interest rates, that's the whole yield curve. Right. That's what I'd like to focus on because I think people watching this will have formulated their own opinions on, on, on inflation or, yeah. or not and my mechanism for why that's being created. Now, we've done that before. So I've, I've read, just recently read The Deficit Myth, which is, uh, well, it's just a remarkable piece of work. But anyway, in that, Stephanie Keldon points out that the Federal Reserve have indeed in, in controlled the yield curve before, and that was from 1942 until 1951. And she says, look, can be done. Obviously, it's a wonderful thing because it was done before. What she failed to mention when she did that is that during that period, America had rationing, price controls, credit controls, and capital controls. Now, and forced purchases of government debt. Now, against that background, of course you can right. manage the yield curve and have relatively low inflation. But believe me, if you lived in America from 41 to 45 and you were buying stuff in the black market, there was rampant inflation. So that excess money created in that process and holding down rates created massive inflation, except for price controls and, uh, uh, and, and rationing. And I think it's the biggest problem I have with people when I try to explain this, is none of them really understand the huge effort it takes to hold that yield curve down. It's like you wave a magic wand and it happens, because it cannot be done by the Federal Reserve. It cannot be done by the Federal Reserve. The, the yield interest rates would start to rise because we're all worried about inflation. The last thing that can then happen is the central bank commits to an infinite rise in its balance sheet mm. to buy the treasuries and, and, curb, and cap the yield curve. So instead, what has to happen is they have to force savers to buy that stuff. And that is exactly what happened after World War II. It was the savers who were forced to hold that stuff while inflation was higher. And government bonds, particularly in Europe, where it was a much bigger problem than America, were called certificates of confiscation. Now, there are all sorts of issues in there with liberty and freedom if you start forcing people's savings into these things. So you're hitting at kind of the very core of what society yeah. is. And you know, when you raise that with an MMT, or they basically say, well, savers deserve it, uh, which may, may have been what they said in the Weimar Republic as well. But there were consequences of wiping out these savers. I mean, it's easy to, look, if we decided to do that, the richest people in the world, I think, would probably get richer. And by what I mean is the richest thousand people in the world. Because they've all got good lawyers and accountants, and that's a form of taxation which they can avoid. What you're wiping out is your middle class, your doctors, your lawyers, your healthcare workers, whatever. And society, societies who wipe out their middle class have tended to pay a pretty high price for it. So I, that's what, you know, it sounds, if I say they're going to cap the yield curve using savings, it sounds so innocuous, rather technocratic, fairly boring, but actually it changes the nature of what a society is. 
Well, the uh, a question I have is that I understand if they try to bring yield curve control at a moment in time when the bond market is already saying, no, 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 you've already done this, why, they're, why, why that's pouring gasoline on a, a lit fire and, and the bond market's going to win that argument after a while. I mean, the central bank can win f- for a time. But um, uh, why wouldn't you see the same adverse reactions if they try to mandate it? I mean, you can force some people to do some things, but you're still going to get the backfire anyway, aren't you? Because basically what you're, you're saying is psychology has changed and, and you, they can't get that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, I thought we were going to get a bit of link in there. You can force some of the people some of the time and all of the people some of the time, but you can't force all of the people all yeah. of the time. And the answer is just, the answer is you, you really can't. And uh, remember, we're not talking about you and me. Forcing you and me to do it may be, may be somewhat difficult, but like, we have regulated institutions. And once you regulate an institution, you can force it to do anything. So I'm not saying that there'll be a law that you, Bill, has to liquidate all your investments and buy government bonds. But if you're running a shop that runs mutual funds uh, or uh, life insurance funds, pension funds, with a wave of a wand, Congress can mandate that you hold these instruments. So that's what I see as uh, how, how, it will be, how it will be done. Uh, and that, that is all done under the guise of macro prudential regulation, which is wonderful because it's a little phrase that almost scans with motherhood and apple pie. I mean, how could you begin? How can you be against something that's prudential? I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an act of marketing genius, this macro prudential regulation, because if you come out against it, you sound like you're some, you know, some madman running through the streets of Portland to come out against macro prudential regulation. You know, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because this, this is, you know, this, this change from um, deflation or disinflation, however you want to characterize it, to inflation is a huge secular shift. And, and it's one of those shifts that we as human beings have a, have a big problem trying to understand and, and, and deal with. Um, and yet this, this seems almost more difficult for people to understand than people out in the streets protesting, you know, physical representations of a shift and a change or, or, or the, maybe the, reaching the end of some kind of cycle People can almost get their heads around those, but the you know the, the pernicious effects of this change from disinflation to inflation are perhaps more dangerous for more people than what we're seeing happening in in you know the chairs, God bless it, in in near Bill. Yeah, I would I would divide that up. I wouldn't say people. I would say savers specifically. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Because you've got to remember, for the average guy in the street, for the first few years, this could look pretty good. Yeah. I mean, if we could engineer a world with a with a thirty year fixed rate mortgage rate never goes above three, but wages were growing at seven, for the average guy in the street, that's pretty good. Uh, now, I would yeah, make a yeah. very strong case as to why, over the long term, it all doesn't you know it all turns bad, even for the the average guy in the street. This is a direct attempt to move money from savers to debtors. So there are many people who benefit from this. So it is striking at this schism in society. The problem with inflation, I mean, and Friedman said this and said long before him, is that it's a taxation without legislation. Hmm. Uh, but being no doubt what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to move money from one section of society to the other. I, I actually don't have a problem with that if you were to pass it through Congress. You know, if you go to Congress and you get elected, lower house, upper house and president, and what you want to do is move money from one section of society to another, then... Well, you may not like it if you've got the money, but it's all done legitimately through the political process. This is to be done illegitimately, and that's my main beef with, with MMT. They want to do it secretly. 
So the problem, as you say, Grant, is that savers haven't, well, in modern times, they haven't had to cope with this new form of taxation and they're ill-equipped for it. But being no doubt, there are actually benefits many people, and that's why it's a, a preferred policy. That's why softer monetary regimes are a product of, of uh, democracy. Uh, we shouldn't forget that. I mean, the gold standard ends r- roughly when we get democracy. Until women get the vote, we have the gold standard. As soon as, you get, as, soon as women get get the vote, we get rid of the gold standard. Right. Now, I, I know a lot of people support the gold standard. I don't. I prefer democracy. But I would think hard currency and uh, democracy are probably ultimately incompatible. So that's the reason we have moved to soft currencies to allow this form of wealth redistribution. And it's savers who have to understand it more, more than anybody. And that's primarily, obviously, the older generation who, t- who t- tend to have the savings. I have a, a fellow that was my original mentor in the business. And what he used to say was, in a social democracy, all roads lead to inflation. You know, a variation of what you just said there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a little you- inflation that's important, Bill. You know, three, four, five percent. We can probably cope with that. Yeah. The problem right. is, can we keep it at that level? Is there a government in history that managed to cap it at these no. levels? And the answer has been no. What do you say to the people, the people that are um, completely convinced that we're on the path to deflation no matter what? One of the, I think one of the crucial uh, elements of their argument is there's simply too much debt and the debt is going to main mean that you know we and there's no way around the deflationary outcome what what do you say to those people that are in that camp okay well i mean obviously for the last decade i've been arguing that we're going to have deflation rather than inflation and it wasn't an argument that there was too much debt it was that there was too much debt but not enough money so that's the, the that's the equation what's the relationship between debt and money and, and debt to gdp has been been edging up we solve the problem of debt if we can just create more money. And uh, it was thought that central bankers would achieve that, and they absolutely failed to achieve it. So the difference now is not that there's any less debt. There's more debt than ever. But finally, they find a way of creating more money. So it's the money that, that does that. There are a limited number of ways you can bring down your debt to GDP ratio, and inflation is probably the least painful. Uh, and that's why it's preferred. It's, it's preferred over uh, default. It's preferred over austerity. And uh, that's why it's going to be in inflation. And, and there's a perfect model for this in post-World War II. We find ourselves, at least in the government sector, with similar debt-to-GDP ratios. And there is a model as to how democracies dealt with it. So just because that's the way they did it last time doesn't guarantee that that's the way they do it next time. But there is at least a nice historical model of how all of this is done. So it's not as if it's going to be, it's not a great surprise as to how you do it, because we've done it already. In fact, policymakers I speak to, and I don't speak to very many, point to the 45 to 1980 period as the triumph of government's ability to reduce debt to GDP. And just to put into context for your, your viewers, what was that triumph like for savers? Well, if you own British government bonds, you lost 85% of your purchasing power. There are, there are modern policymakers who believe that to be one of the greatest success stories in history. Uh, now, if you're the state and you brought your debt to GDP ratio from 250% to 30%, yes. If you're a saver, no. So it's just all these different constituents in, in society. So we've done it before. They see that as a model as to how we do it again. And inflation is that uh, it's not an invisible tax, but it's less visible than the normal taxation that uh, is, is foisted upon people. And this one's pretty clearly targeted on savers. And they are the guilty men, aren't they? And the guilty women. Every, I hear every yeah. day how, how guilty they are for having savings. Yeah. Yeah, Russell, you, you talked about um, this transition of uh, kind of control over the outcome now from um, from central banks to, to policymakers. And, and it was really interesting because, 
you talked about how central banks are basically in fact have become irrelevant at this point you know it's it's this has been something that we've debated backwards and forwards for decades literally about you know the, the, this om, omnipresence and this omnipotence of of central bankers to to have them rendered powerless almost by virtue of the stroke of a, a congressional pen J just talk a little bit about how important that is and and why it is you see it that way because if 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 you're right and I, and I suspect you might well be that is a huge change both in the landscape and also how we have to think about what programs might be instituted next yeah so it's the greatest irony that nearly everybody i speak to believes that central bankers are all powerful just as they've lost all their power that's <laughs> yeah. the irony and for those of you watching this who've seen the wizard of oz that shouldn't come as a great surprise so last scene of the wizard of oz uh so you know i mentioned that uh, this old way of creating money or this way of creating money through central through commercial banks and then what central banks do is create high-powered money bank reserves which sits in the banks. So imagine a world where you, Grant, are running the Federal Reserve and you're in control of this money that goes into the banks, this, this form of money here. But I am the government and I'm in control of the balance sheet. So I'm in control of whether that balance sheet expands or contracts and at the pace at which it expands and contracts. The person who's creating money now is me, is not you. Yep. You can feed as many of these into the, into the commercial banking system as you want. You can pull as many of these out of the commercial banking system as you want. But if it's me, the government, who says, you guys are increasing their balance sheets by 20% this year, I'm in the business of making money. But you're the one who's got the 2% inflation target. Right. Now, what are your chances of hitting that 2% right. inflation target when I control the supply of money? So that, in my opinion, is what's happened. The people who push back against me say it's only temporary. It's a temporary move of the governments into the commercial banks. They'll be out. Distress, if that's correct, I am wrong, and the central bankers are not have not lost their power. But that's how they have have lost their their power, and it's 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 global. It's it's happening everywhere. You might call it uh, bank, uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, this the, the, this this uh, this whole idea that um, that they can do that, meet that inflation target with someone else flooding the system with money. Just, I mean, it it, it doesn't take an awful lot of time to think it through to realise it's just unworkable. Yeah, and think think of what the conclusions are for the euro. Yeah, I mean, if there are nineteen member states of the eurozone, if each nineteen of the member states is in control of the creation of euros, how long can you have a single currency? I think initially people will get very excited about their ability to create lots of euros given how yeah. much the ECB and much the ECB has failed to do so. But in the long run, you can't have a single currency with 19 uh, currency <laughs> issuing member states. So the market hasn't gone on to that yet. But yeah. that's because everybody needs money and therefore it's just we're in the early stages of reflation. But the time will come when a country like Germany wants to stop and doesn't want to create more inflation and doesn't want to move money from savers to debtors. But countries like France or, or Italy are still very keen to keep going. And that's when the schism comes and, and raises questions about a single currency. What, um, what do you think the outcome will be in Japan where I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with this idea of now that they've got control of essentially half the JGBs, um, what would you guess the end game is there? Uh, are they going to just tear it up or swap it for something else? And what what will life look like on the other side of that if they if they if they do something like that? Okay, so we'll start with one proposition, which I give you for all central banks: the, the balance sheets will never shrink from current levels. Okay. I think that's easy to agree with. I think we'd probably all agree. 
Now, if that's true, is anything they hold actually dead? Yeah. Because it is a perpetu- it is a perpetual non-interest bearing transfer. And where I come from, we call that a gift. <laughs> a perpetual non-interest bearing transfer. I mean, even Goldman's couldn't sell a perpetual non-interest bearing transfer. So, no, I don't know. Maybe they could. So it's not debt. It's already stopped. to be. So people say, will they ever tear it up? You never have to tear that up. It's already ceased to be debt. Now, I have some really high-quality academic backing for that because the Chicago Plan of 1933, which had at least two economic geniuses on it in Frank Knight and Irving Fisher, called debt held by the central banks uh, equity in the Commonwealth. You know, it ceased to be debt. So the answer to your question, Bill, is I think they can give up buying any more JGBs. I don't think they really have to. Now they've got control of the commercial banking system. It's going to work much more. Be- it's going to work much better anyway than just simply buying JGBs and flushing the banking system full of reserves. You know, why bother giving them more reserves? They've got reserves coming out of their ears. You could sink the Titanic with the reserves those guys have sitting on. <laughs> so uh, I think they can kind of lay up on that now once they've got uh, control of the commercial bank. It's really fascinating. The, the broad money growth in Japan is at 5.9%, which from memory is going to be a 30-year high, just like that. Yeah. So all these years trying to create money, suddenly you wake up one morning and there's money gushing out of the end, gushing out of the system. Are they really going to give it up and go back to buying even more JGBs? But the answer to your question, I think for every central banker in the world, is all the debt they hold is no longer debt. I think many people watching this will say, well, if it's that easy, why, why haven't we been doing this forever? Uh, and the reason was not because of the debt they held, it's because of the reserves they created in the process. And historically, if you created too many reserves in the banking system, you got massive bank loan growth and money supply growth. Uh, but we got away with it this time because all those reserves did pile up in the system. So uh, it, it creates many, many other problems. I mean, I've argued for at least eight years of the QE period that the way this would end is that they would just go to controlling the commercial bank balance sheets rather than ever try to shrink the reserves of the banking system. If you just said to the banks, guys, this is your 6% loan growth, no more, no less, 6% loan growth, you wouldn't have to worry that the, commercial, the central bank balance sheets were so big and the reserves in the system were so big so I've argued long and hard that they would control it. I didn't actually see them controlling it through bank credit guarantees. But anyway, this is where we've got to. They now are uh, controlling it. Also, how, how similar is this and how applicable is the example of Japan and the, and the directed lending? How the, the Japanese banks were given quotas and said, you will get this lending yep. out the door into the economy every month and you'll report back to the Bank of Japan and, and uh, you, know, you, you have to meet these quotas essentially. Okay, so, so the, the problem for Japan over the last 20 years is it really hasn't had any bank credit growth and therefore it hasn't had any broad money yeah. growth. That's why they failed to get inflation. But that's now begun to, to change. In the period of financial repression I mentioned before, that's exactly what happened. The government yeah. would say every year to the banks, here's how much you're allowed to lend. Interestingly, not because there wasn't enough inflation, but actually the reverse. They were trying to cap bank credit growth and money supply growth because there was too much right. of it. Uh, and even Richard Nixon was up to that. And you've got to remember that, that, that it was Nixon who brought in price controls and credit controls and tightened up on capital controls. Republicans can do this just as easily as Democrats in a crisis, when you get to a crisis. So uh, for most of the post-war period, commercial bank balance sheets were simply controlled, not through interest rates. That was what the revolution was of the 19, late yeah. 1970s, early 80s. It was to control things via interest rates, via the price, rather than via mandated government quantities. And what this bank credit guarantee program shows is the birth of a system of moving us back to government quotas and not prices. So that's a post-capitalist 
system. You know, just to be clear, the last 20 years hasn't exactly been a capitalist system anyway, but this does eradicate some of the more capitalist elements of it. And uh, my best example of what that does in the long run, we've discussed some of the good things that can do for the average guy in the street in the short run. But in the long run, the United Kingdom used to have some of the world's greatest automobile companies. But we went into financial repression with government-mandated credit, and we ended up with British Leyland. Now, I guess many people watching this won't know what British Leyland is. (laughs) No, they won't. You should should Google it. And in my library of mistakes, which I run in Edinburgh, pride of place, we have a British Leyland key fob sitting up on the uh, sitting up on the mantelpiece. So government-mandated credit flows, maybe even equity flows, do take you to a dark place eventually. But what I think is interesting about the the, the great financial repression in the United Kingdom from 45 to 80, halfway through that, about 63, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom was able to stand up in public and say, you've never had it so good. Because for a large proportion of the population, that was true. That early inflation was was, was quite good. Yeah, and within a few years, we were asking the IMF to bail us out, as I remember. Correct. I think I think from memory, 1976. 76, yeah. Later, yeah. 13 years later, we were bankrupt. Yeah. And it, and it was because we'd allocated the capital so badly that we were inefficient and we couldn't compete with anybody. Yeah. You know, Russell, something else you said um, in that conversation uh, caught my eye, and that's a kind of theme that that we've we've had brought up on this podcast before. We we, we were using it with the context of. You know, promoting people to run desks at the at the beginning of cycles who were young and inexperienced and didn't have the scars of previous cycles. And and you mentioned almost in a, as a throwaway at the end of your uh, conversation in the in the market, um, talking about how you've been recommending to clients that they promote people who've been running emerging market desks to run their developed markets desks, which kind of is the same thing. But I, I'd love you to kind of flesh that out a bit more because it's it makes so much sense to me. And and so I'd just love to get your your some color on it. Yeah, so the two elements of financial repression are, just to recap, higher inflation and holding interest rates down. Uh, And hopefully we've covered already a lot of the massive uh, government interference you need actually to hold interest rates down, it's not that simple. Now, I would argue if you've been managing money in emerging markets, you've kind of been coping with this for a very long period of time. This has been more the norm than the exception. Uh, The markets were never free and inflation has been genuinely in emerging markets much higher. Uh, Political interference has been much higher, political corruption has been much higher, uh, and you therefore have learned a skill set as to how to allocate capital in this country. I'm often more blunt in that comment, Grant, when I say you just fire, I just always just say fire everybody and hire Brazilians. Right, <laughs> right. You know, if there's anybody who can successfully successfully push up the, the savings power of their savings while living in Brazil, that person deserves respect, admiration. Yeah. Yeah. And we should have them. You should have more Brazilians on this program. That's kind of what I'm saying. So uh, uh, most emerging markets never really got fully away from financial repression, clearly much further away than they were in the late 1970s, but never completely away from it. And China, absolutely not away from it. So there's a skill set amongst emerging market investors. Uh, most people who manage money in the developed world have th- th- done that over, over 40 years of disinflation. And 40 years of markets becoming more powerful in governments, maybe not so much the last 10. So they, they believe this is the norm. I know, I'm sure you know this great story about the old fish swimming along one day and the two young fish come swimming towards him. And the old fish says to the fish, uh, nice day, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish keep swimming. And one turns to the other and goes, what the hell is water? Right. And if you've lived in a world of disinflation and more markets and less government, that's the water. And that's the water that yeah. you swim in. And you believe that that is what 
always exists. And there are people from emerging markets who know that sometimes you get something different and they've got a skill set to, to cope with that. Uh, and that's why I think we should seriously seriously think about that. And the skill set you need to manage money from 1945 to 1979 was very different than the skill set that followed. Well, for, uh, you, you made the point in your interview that <clears throat> those folks that have had all their formative years from the 80s on <clears throat> don't really understand financial repression, and hence some of the emerging market folks have a better understanding. But maybe for those people who have learned how the world works in the last 10 or 20 years, could you just give them a shorthand description of what financial repression means, what, what, where, what that slogan means and how it operates so that they'll understand. Yeah. So I have a ninety-minute presentation on this. So now we're now we're going <laughs> to really have to. I did this was this was four hundred years in two minutes. Now we're going to have to really, 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 really get going. Where to start? Uh, let, let's take it really. We can just do the cliff notes, you know. Yeah, I know you guys have cliff notes. I've never been a big fan of cliff notes. I mean, that's the biggest problem I have in my library mistakes. You know, people walk in, they say, what's the one book I should read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, human, the human being always wants a shortcut. Like, I'll just cut to what I think are the two or three biggest takeaways. Hey, I'll take the whole 90 minutes, Rafa. Don't worry about me. Okay, well, yeah, maybe some other time. Uh, capital controls. So I think sit down with your portfolio and try to imagine what that means for individual businesses and the the portfolio. Inflation above interest rates, we've already discussed. Think of it company by company, equity by by equity, and you'll come to some profound conclusions about what uh, the stocks that would benefit from that are are minuscule in market capitalization terms. If you get a 40-year trend in inflation, the winners are all disinflationary stocks that benefit from disinflation. Uh, and uh, you know, trying to be very blunt, I would, I would also look at Japan. Yeah. Uh, there are many things that have gone wrong in Japan, but it's clearly not benefited from having high fixed costs in a world of low inflation. So higher inflation is going to be uh, beneficiaries. So uh, read financial history, I think, is the only simple answer I can give to that. Read about the 45 to 79 period. Read what worked, what didn't work. Uh, there are still a few very old fund managers around who were around then and, and speak to them. And I've just brushed the surface, but that's some kind of maybe pointers in the, in the right direction for what financial repression, in practical terms, where you should be looking and what you should be trying to do. Gold, I mean, gold is the standout asset for financial repression. I mean, I'm not a gold bug. I'm not somebody who turns up every day and says, buy gold. But uh, for four years since I've started writing about financial repression, it is, it is the standout asset to, to cope with that. And I don't say that lightly because it's an unproductive asset uh, for anybody watching this who knows the... Uh, the parable of the talents. It's the equivalent of taking the money, the money from the master, digging a hole in the ground and putting it in there. And it's not good for society. But when uh, when we get to a world of financial repression, I'm afraid that is gold as the standout asset class. Yeah, you, you've done the job beautifully for me because I was going to come on to gold because it's something obviously we we haven't really we've mentioned it when we when we went back to 1695 and the, and the coins, but we haven't really talked about it. And, it, and it's now become something that you really have to talk it's kind of forced its way into the conversation whichever way you 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 want to cut it and you know when you talk about this idea of uh the experience that emerging market managers have emerging market citizens have of dealing with financial repression a big part of that is obviously uh, a, a very loosely held faith in whatever currency they are presented with at any given time and and a, and a much stronger faith in gold because they've seen what it can do through periods of financial repression. So um, you know, with the caveat that you're absolutely not a gold bug and, and it's not something that you've 
you've you've talked about you've acknowledged its qualities both good and bad over the years talk a little bit about how your thinking around this this seminal event you describe has changed your thinking towards gold and, and what that means for 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 both gold and the people who haven't been looking at it but really perhaps ought to take a look at it now so I'll set aside the inflation bit because I think it just goes without saying more inflation is going to be good good for yeah. gold. That's the bit I think everybody gets, and not everybody might agree with me that there's inflation coming. It's actually the other bit I think which is more powerful for gold. Remember that second bit of this equation was keeping interest rates down yeah. when gold goes up. That means mandating where people can put their money. Uh, it means much more government control in the allocation of credit. It means the government trying to get money from savers. It means more administrative moves and less markets. It means some form of restriction on the free movement of capital. And therefore, people go for that thing which can move freely across borders, which is more difficult, not impossible, but is more difficult for government to interfere with. So gold benefits from two things. It benefits from the higher inflation, but actually it benefits even more from the ability of governments through macroprudential regulation to interfere on the returns of paper assets. And interfering on the return on gold, there's only one way to do that, which is take it off you. Yeah. But yeah. it's so easy to, ref I, mean, I mean, if I want to interfere with the return on, on equity, it's easy, I can double the corporate tax rate. I want to interfere with the rate of return on bonds as a government, I can do that easily by creating more inflation and forcing you to buy it. The only way I can interfere with the return of this stuff is to take it off you, yeah. which is not impossible, but, but unlikely. So it's more about the move back towards more government that is probably going to be ultimately more powerful. So the market's out on inflation. I mean, if we look at inflation like bonds at the minute, they're not signaling there's going to be high inflation, yet gold is going straight up. So it may be that gold is more responding to that greater level of government intervention at the minute than it is to higher inflation expectations. But believe me, if you get both of those firing at the same time, yeah, it's got a long way. It's got a lot further to go, and I think both of those will have to fire at the same time because I can see no other stable answer to the excessive debt level. And it's, that's not a stable answer; it's just the least unstable answer to right. the right. debt level. Yeah, those expectations, um, they are starting to creep up, uh, and this is something that again we've discussed on, on this podcast. Um, have you seen anything in inflation expectations, you know, whether it's in the tips market or in break-evens, that lead you to suggest that perhaps at the margin, and these things tend to move at the margin first, people are starting to cotton onto this? It seems to me that it's starting to happen, but not in any meaningful way just yet. Yeah, so I mean, all those in indicated inflation rates are up since the lows in March. But if I give you, and I must have been, I've been fishing for a few days, Grant, so I haven't checked them for a couple of Good days. for you. Good for so, you. So I've been frightening. I've been frightening trout rather than frightening investors. For the past <laughs> uh, but if I give your uh, viewers some idea of where we are in those numbers, I mean, I think, I think the whole of Europe is still below 0.5 percent indicated inflation over the next five years, and certainly, like just a few weeks ago, Italy was below 0.2 percent. Uh, Japan is in the same situation. Uh, America would be a bit higher. The United Kingdom is the one that's significantly higher. South Africa and Brazil are higher. But they're at incredibly, maybe up from March, but they're incredibly low levels. Some of those countries, France in particular, would be below where it was in 2009, which I think is pretty remarkable. Not every country is, but, but France is. So whatever the journey from March to the current is, we're still running at incredibly low levels. Uh, I could put it in another way. Most of these, maybe with the exception of Japan, most of the break-even inflation rates are at levels of inflation over the next five years that none of these countries has ever actually achieved. <laughs> right, right. And that would be even Germany, 
You know, I think even Germany would never have achieved the level of inflation which they're expected to achieve over the next five years. So that maybe puts it into some context. Yes, it's up a little bit, but the idea that we're breaking out on inflation expectations is not, not happening yet. So it's interesting about gold, isn't it? Gold, something else must be moving yeah. gold. I, I mean, uh, I, I, I keep thinking maybe it's just it's just currency. It's just people looking at what's happening here and thinking, well, look, they're gonna they're just gonna debase all these currencies, and that seems to be the only option. Well, another point is that um, you know the central bank policies of the last twenty five years um, have basically anesthetized the bond markets because they. I mean, it's not a real market; it's a it's a administered rate to use whoever's phrase came you know coined that. And it may take longer, and plus with the muscle memory that's been developed, as, as you just sort of uh, alluded to, it's possible that it's going to take those markets that have been sort of administered and all the participants have learned the world as it has been to react, whereas gold is a non-administered market. It can do whatever the hell it wants. And and um, it may be that it, that's the first place we're seeing it simply because it's still a quote-unquote free market. Yeah, I think I think that's perfectly reasonable. And we already have in place certain mechanisms to hold these bond yields down through uh, uh, asset liability modeling and stuff like that, which is keeping them down. The other one I wouldn't uh, underestimate is the fact that somewhere, even as we speak in the South China Seas, there's a man called Admiral James Kirk who's in control of two American aircraft carriers. Now, that would make me want to hold a little bit more gold as well. I mean, the, the China-American relationship, uh, which I hope and pray doesn't become more than a cold war, is, is, is going the wrong direction very, very quickly uh, indeed. So uh, the, the more, more American aircraft carriers get closer to China, I think the more the gold price also goes up. I mean, there's no easy answer to this. This is, this is a, a conflict fought in trade, in capital, in technology, and ultimately in, in armaments, hopefully just piling them up against each other. So that's, that's going to send the gold price higher. Well, you know, that's that that development that you're speaking of is is really not gotten much uh sort of ink anywhere about the the the, the friction on, you know, all three different levels. And um um because it seems like the mainstream media is so caught up in the societal virtue signaling things that are going on. Um but, but that is a real problem that is that has been uh growing and um it's 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 kind of it's a wild card, but it's a very big deal. And uh, what would you think it would take to have people start focusing on that more? Just a, a first yeah. skirmish, or no, we I, really don't want a skirmish. That'd be really bad. I don't think it's going to be a skirmish. But what I think is going to happen: America has left the intermediate range nuclear uh, intermediate range missile treaty with Russia. Now, I didn't leave that treaty to build more uh, missiles to face down Russia. It left that treaty so it can build missiles to face down China, and that is in no doubt whatsoever. Uh, now, from memory, the intermediate range of intermediate range missiles up to about three thousand miles. So, what's what's intermediate to some people sounds like quite a long way for us. But that means that there is nowhere for those missiles to go except somewhere in Asia. There has to be a country in Asia that's going to accept these missiles, and it is not. It is it's not as if it's a secret that the American uh, uh, defense minister spends his time trying to find governments in Asia that will accept these missiles. And I think somebody eventually will. And I would say that's what's going to focus the mind. Now, there was an announcement from Australia last week in terms of uh, formally contesting China's uh, claims to the South China Sea, which could be a precursor mm -hmm. Australia mm -hmm. accepting this, these missiles. Uh, the outer left field, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that it's Vietnam that affects 
these missiles, despite that horrible history between Vietnam and the United States of America. So my answer to your question is, I mean, I, I do really hope it's not a skirmish. But I think once these American missiles start arriving, that's the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse. Yeah, yeah. They won't have nuclear, well, they shouldn't have nuclear warheads on them. But for China, this is the Cuba moment. And the tensions there will rise dramatically. So that may not be a skirmish, but it's still pretty frightening and it's still pretty scary. Uh, because so far, China has not reacted. I mean, China's been, as you know, it's been, uh, let's say, uh, silently aggressive for quite a long time mm-hmm. here. But in terms of the punches that the president's been landing on it, it's been on the ropes with his hands up. It doesn't want to come out and punch because it's hoping that President Trump goes away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frankly, mm-hmm. It. uh, it's, uh, it's a bit like the rumble in the jungle, right? So they're kind of hoping right. that that'll happen. Uh, but I don't think the Democrats will actually be any less. Uh, you know, I think they'll be just as strong anti-China as, as, as the Republicans are. So at some stage, China's going to have to come out punching rather than just sitting on the ropes, hoping that they go away. And coming out punching is definitely going to have to happen if missiles start appearing around China. So I think that will be the trigger point. It could be tomorrow morning. I mean, it could be tomorrow morning and it might not be for two years. I don't think anybody on who's watching this can really get the insight to know which Asian country will first accept these missiles. The balance of power changes dramatically as they start coming in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Russell, just before we wrap it up, um, just uh, I'd love to get your views on the... Um, the economy. Obviously, we've we've seen we've seen all this V-shaped stuff being um, necessarily almost trotted out because that's the thing that we all have to believe in that there is a V-shaped recovery underway. I mean, Larry Kudlow, God bless him. I don't know how he does it, but he seems to be able to get up and say this stuff with <laughs> a straight face. Um, but what what do you see? Because it, it it seems completely unfeasible for me for the economy to get back anywhere near where it was. Uh, and if that's correct, then there are an awful lot of asset prices in this world which are priced utterly incorrectly. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously that's the big guesswork. And I don't think yeah. it's worth much, there's much work worth talking about velocity because kind of velocity is a product of GDP anyway. Uh, my guess from the outset, it would take 18 months to get back to where we were in January. But that seems to be rather inflationary if it's only 18 months. Yeah. 18 months. If, people are, if the savings rate comes back to where it was in January in 18 months, and therefore, spending goes back to where it was in 18 months. And the total amount of money in the system is at least 15% higher. Then how outrageous is it to have an call for 4% inflation? And I guess I can't in any way back up the 18 months. That's when people might say it's five years before it happens. Uh, but I'm looking at something like SARS in Hong Kong as something of a guide, or SARS in China as something of a guide. And within 18 months, we, we get on with it. Yeah. And... Uh, it, it depends what you think what human beings are. And, and I, I have this incredible faith in, in human beings to, to revert to, well, faith and also dismay that they revert to normal behavior. It's a combination of both. <laughs> but think of what human beings have been through. I mean, the Blitz in London, uh, you know, SARS, pandemics, or whatever. But underneath it, they want to revert to the way they were before. Mm-hmm. And they, on the whole, they achieve it. And they achieve it more quickly than you think. So that's not a V-shaped recovery. But I think within 18 months, life will be going on. It won't be going on the same. For certain businesses, for sure, there'll be certain businesses mm-hmm. which are in trouble and will not be coming back. And behavior will change. But in terms of consumption relative to savings, which is really, I think, what we're most focused yep. on, I think it will come back to roughly where it was in January within, within 18 months. So the savings rate, I think, has just come down from 32% to the high 20s. It was probably 7 when we started this. Yeah. 
it's not outrageous to say it goes back to seven. I don't think we're looking at a permanently higher jump in savings. Uh, and therefore, I think within that time frame, it'll be, in terms of the amount of money circulating in the economy and the speed at which it circulates, it will be normal within 18 months. So we're already, what, five months into that? So that's 13 months from now. And you, and you, I mean, you were talking about um, 4% inflation likely to be a reality by 2021. I mean, obviously, I, I never hold anyone to any timeframes because we're all just guessing about the future. But, but it's interesting that your window for this to pick up to that kind of degree is so relatively short. A lot of people are saying this is a four or five year problem, but I mean, you're talking you know, within, within 12 to 18 months. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I said actually 2020, and I don't usually give a, a such a no. time frame, but I just thought it would be a dishonest of me to make a claim for more inflation without putting some precision on it. So on this occasion, I've said 4% or higher uh, sometime in 2020 across the developed world. Now, there is a reason for that, which is nothing to do with money, which is I do think this China thing is getting out of control. And if we were, uh, if we are in a world where we're able to buy less from China, that's also highly inflationary. Yeah. Not in everything. Some things it's actually deflationary and perhaps commodities. So if you have a belief that we're going that direction with China and we're looking at broad money growth, in my opinion, stabilizing at above 15%, it, it seems to be inconsistent to say that there wouldn't be a level of inflation around 4%. And 4% isn't a high number. No. It's, it's actually a fairly, it's a fairly low number. But it is interesting that I can't persuade people that it will even get to, uh, to 4%. But China is part of that equation for higher inflation. It's clearly been a massive disinflationary uh, yeah. force. And if we begin to take it out of the global trading regime, that, that adds to the inflation. Well, on the subject of inflation, uh, I mean, logically, what you suggest doesn't seem to be a stretch at all. One question I have, um, and it's puzzled me for a long time, is, when you said sort of worldwide, one of the one of the one of the problems is um, the inflation measurement issue. Uh, here in the states, of course, we have the CPI, which has been particularly bastardized, such that it's extremely difficult for it to show inflation when you can use hedonics and substitution and those other tricks. I don't know how the statistics are calculated in, in all these other countries. Uh, so, do you kind of mean it'd be a generally accepted view that that's about what it's running at, even though the data may not show that? Because to get the CPI to print four, I think inflation itself would have to probably be ten or twelve because it's such a bad measure. No, I think we can get the measured CPI at four. And I haven't looked. Uh, John Williams runs his shadow statistics. And right, I'm familiar with his work. I haven't yeah. looked at them recently. No, I think the actual reported number can be at four. Uh, you know, four isn't outrageous. We were close to four in 2007. I think we may have got just to four. I think we were close to four in 2011. We were at four in 2000. We were at four in 96. Uh, four, I've got a long presentation on why four is an important number. But, you know, the reason I pick that period is those were periods of China producing. Those were periods of massive technological breakthrough. Uh, those were periods where money supply growth was probably closer to 10 than five. And even then you got to 4%. So it's not an outrageous forecast to say for, and that was on the measured number, and the hedonics came in in the late 1990s, when yeah. Clinton's administration yeah. brought in the hedonic adjustments. So even with hedonic adjustments, even with these great structural uh, disinflationary trends, uh, we've still been able to get inflation to 4% with the right level of money. So I don't think it's an... Uh, I, I think it's a fairly straightforward forecast. The more the more difficult forecast is where, is where it goes after that. That's much more difficult. Well, it's obviously yeah. it, can get out, it can get out of control. Well, I was going to say, most most times, four percent is a stop on the way to double digits or one. It's oh. it's not normally somewhere it goes and stays. 
But that's been the fascinating thing. It's really why, I mean, obviously I've been wrong on a lot of things. That's the business you're in when you forecast. And on four occasions in my career, inflation has got to 4% and stopped. This is US yeah. inflation. And that's been the thing that surprised me, that it has stopped. And I'm, I'm making them up, but I think it was 90, that, those four I mentioned, 96, 2000, 2007 and 2011, and it stopped and it came back down again. And this time, and that's probably, you know, back to what Bill's comment, why are people so complacent about this? That's probably the other reason, Yeah, is that whether it was for the mm-hmm. design of the Fed or pure luck, it stopped at four last time. Now, I, I don't think it will this time, but I haven't actually written a piece of research to focus on that because it's hard enough persuading people it's going to four. Right, 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 right. But we have now lived through, I think, back to your point, Grant, I think that's a fairly unique period of history in a, in a fiat currency where we've actually been able to constantly stop it at four. That's that's been an achievement of sorts. It's come at a very very high price, if you ask me. But that's come. We had we had two bubbles that burst each time to help absolutely. get it back down absolutely. to four. It was a rather big accident that helped that, it out. That's what I mean. It's come at a very high price. Yeah. But, yeah. Right. But the market maybe believes, hey, it was a genius. We can cap it. Yeah. Or they've capped it right. before before. So, and through that entire period, we've just added more and more and more debt, meaning that we have to really really inflate it away, and that's. That's the high price we ultimately paid. We've, yeah. we've stopped it by getting even more debt on board. So, uh, so maybe that's why people think, well, like it could go up, but it's not. Can't go through four because it's never gone through four in my lifetime. Which yeah. means we're very young. Yeah, exactly right. Well, look, Russell, we've uh, we've we've taken up plenty of your time. Before we go, I know there are thousands of people out there who follow everything you do and they know how to get hold of you and they know all about the library of mistakes and they know all about all the good stuff you've done but there will be people listening to this that aren't familiar so perhaps you could tell them how they can uh, you know follow you more and and give a little plug to the library of mistakes because i'm dying to come see it next time i get to edinburgh yeah so so there's kind of bad news on that first bit because Uh i do i do write for eric my website but you're only allowed into eric if you are work for a regulated financial institution so there you have it there is the bad news uh, that's just uh, an, an, uh, under British law. The good news is that lots of people steal it and it, it appears all over the place. So <laughs> using using Google in the year 2020, it's amazing where it seems to crop up. And, and one day we will we shall pursue these vagabonds and, um, and deal with them. At the minute, they are stealing it, so some of it will crop up. But if you do work for a regular financial institution, uh, please go to, uh, put my name yeah. in, the word Eric, and you'll find... Uh, where to register online. In terms of the library mistakes, we now have two open and a third one would be open if it wasn't for COVID. So I don't know if you're a regular visitor to Switzerland grant to go and, uh, you know, (coughs) never heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so you don't go to Switzerland, but if you ever happen to go to Switzerland, uh, Lausanne, we'll be opening one in Lausanne very soon. I wish it was open, but it's a beautiful library. There's one in Pune in India and there's one in, in, in Edinburgh. It's a charity. Uh, these are charitable ventures. They're open to the general public. You just have to go and register. Uh, the, on, the, on the Edinburgh one, we run guest lectures and we record those or short excerpts of those. So if you go to the Edinburgh one and click on lectures, you'll find lots of little lectures on financial history, which we hope are instructive to help you forecast the financial future. Uh, and if anybody's looking to set up a, a library of mistakes, we're happy to collaborate with you. All you need is enthusiasm and a large checkbook. So uh, if there's anybody watching this who has both of those assets, we'd be delighted to have a conversation with you uh, and we can open a few more of these and begin to educate the public and more importantly the investing professionals that the future cannot be described yeah. in an equation yeah amen to that and look, with, with well inflation said. coming what better use to get rid of all that currency in your pocket by helping you <laughs> fund another library of mistakes i think it's a, a great way to, to save yourself the pain of inflation i would say cash in all your paper and help us buy more paper <laughs> <laughs>
There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> Russell, thank you so much for doing this. It's been, it's been a pleasure, as it always is whenever I get to talk, talk to you. And uh, thanks for being so gracious with your time. Okay, not a problem. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow. That, that's going to blow some people's minds. Fascinating, right? I mean, it's... Swear to God. I mean, I mean, I believe everything he said. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, he just articulated better than than I could. Um, yeah, look, but, Russell's one of a kind. I mean, he is. He, he writes beautifully. He speaks beautifully. And as I said to you before, before we started recording, I said, you know, Russell's knowledge of history is just unparalleled. So imagine my delight when he said, I'm going to go back to 1695 to tell us that's like, that's my boy. But he's, uh, he's yeah, well, amazing. It was, it was rather remarkable how he got from 1695 to the present so quickly. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, but it just, as I said at the time, it just shows you how little has changed, right? Underneath all this, they changed the color of the buttons and they changed the handles on the levers, but the principles are the same. I mean, it's the same, the same scheme run over well, and over again. And I, I thought about the point that Mike Green made about, um, you know, the game you're playing may not be the game that's actually in operation. Right. What he basically was saying is, was that he'd said it differently, but yeah. the game everyone's playing is, is maybe going to change to something else that you have to have a lot of gray hair to have seen already once. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's, you know, I think, I think for both of us, that's a big reason for doing this podcast is to just to get people in the space where they're thinking about this stuff and they're thinking about, because it's so easy to be complacent and assume that the rules of the game never change, um, but they do. You know, one one day they put a three point arc on on the NBA court, right, and the game changed completely. Um, right, and so it, that that's I think that the best gift we can give people with these conversations is just listening to people who who do think both through the lens of the past and more importantly, perhaps into the lens of the future, just how things could change, and don't be complacent. Assume that the rules by which you play the game today are going to be the same tomorrow because they won't. And necessarily, I think with, with the problems that we face, those rule changes will have to be put in very fast and, and, and be draconian. Because if people get a whiff that the rules of the game are going to change and start to, to, to plan and position accordingly, it kind of negates the, the, the reasons for changing the rules in the first place. <laughs> well, well said. If they, uh, well, said so that the the old the old Bernard Baruch quote. I think it was Bernard Baruch, or maybe it was the Jesse Livermore. And I probably read it because of Jim Crow. Yeah, so we'll hold, look at Jim Crow. But hold still, little uh, guppy or uh, little fish. That getting won't hurt much right. for long, or something <laughs> right, like that. You right. know. Oh boy! Well, look, another. I think um, I mangled it. An, another another episode of the Endgame series in the books. We have. Our next guest lined up, um, and it's going to be another barn burner of a conversation. We've, we've been so lucky in getting so many people who are just the right people to talk about this. Um, uh, and I won't reveal who our next guest is. I want to make sure that the, the, the spotlight on this episode is firmly placed on Russell. But we do have another one of these things lined up. And well, it'll be probably the perfect counterpoint to yep. this conversation. I mean, we didn't exactly set it up that way, but that's the way it's exactly going to come right. down. And um so it will be interesting to see, you know, the, the one thing I wanted to point, I want to make about what you were saying a minute ago is that one of the beauties of being able to talk to somebody over an hour, say, um, you can actually get the logic and the, uh, their premises and how they feel about things all sorted out. It's almost impossible to ever get that done on TV. No. So most of the financial news programs could never, ever even 
attempt to try to get at some of these issues. This is about the only medium where you can really do it. It's so true. I'm not saying us. No, no, I'm I know. Just saying I, I, a podcast. No, your points right, well taken. Right, and yeah, yeah that, that was hammered home to me as we talked to Jim, you know, on the yeah. last episode, because Jim is a regular on all kinds of, uh, you know, programming on, on the, on the networks. And none of these idiots ever give him a chance to talk. And it's just, it's like, why wouldn't you just shut up if you can listen to Jim Grant speak? I mean, there is literally nothing I've ever said or will ever say that is more interesting to me or anybody else than listening to Jim Grant speak. So shut up. It's simple. Well, what he has to say doesn't fit their narrative. Oh, yeah, that's true. To use the modern vernacular. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. That is true. Anyway, mate, that's it for another another episode. Um, thank you so much for, for tuning in and joining us. Uh, if you could, I, I ask this every time, but if you could find a second to rate and review us on iTunes, it, it really does help. Uh, it helps more people find the podcast and listen to the likes of, uh, of Jim and Russell and all the other fantastic guests we've had on. Um, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, should you have the inclination to do so, at TTMYGH. And you can find me at FleckCap, as it sounds, or you could go to my website, FleckensteinCapital.com. You can do both, and I would recommend you do both. Bill, thanks, mate. Um, we'll do this again soon. Very soon, in fact. A couple of days. Yeah. I look forward to it, mate. All right. Take care. See ya. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.